Hello and welcome back to the Elmtown Podcast. It's Kevin coming to you with another episode. I'm joined today by Koya Lampa. Hi, Koya. Hi. Koya goes by Razi on the Elm Slack. You may have seen him there, especially in the Elm Language Server channel. That is a bit of a spoiler about what we're going to be talking about today. Koya is the author of the Elm Language Server and the Elm Visual Studio Code plugin that leverages it to provide a really nice and increasingly nice editor experience for that editor. And we'll be going into all the nitty-gritty details there, as well as hearing, you know, what brought Kolya to Elm. But before we dive into all of that, as usual, I would just like to shout out to Culture Amp for supporting this podcast. Aside from my time, I often credit them for letting me record these podcasts during working hours, but just so happens it's a Saturday evening, so it's not working hours today. But they pay for the very cool web-based recording studio that we use to make this show. Just in general, they don't mind the slightly excessive amount of time that I put towards this show sometimes. So it is great to have an employer like that that doesn't mind giving back to the open source community that puts together the language that we love using to build our front ends there. As I've said before, CultureAmp builds a web application that companies all over the world use to hear from their employees about what they're thinking and feeling about their jobs and their workplace. That's something I really love going to work every day to contribute to. And also a shout out to Xavier Ho. Xavier, I have been overwhelming you with the number of new episodes I've been recording. Ever since this COVID-19 virus came in and, and made us all stay at home, it suddenly seems like a really good time to stock up on podcast recordings. But as I record this, there are four episodes in Xavier's inbox waiting to be edited. So thank you so much, my friend, for uh, continuing to help me put these out. Kolya, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here. For the benefit of our listeners and for myself, who this is the first time I'm getting to meet you properly, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, hi, I'm Koya, and I'm mostly working on open source stuff right now. Well, I'm actually going to work normally, as normal as you can go to work right now. Like, I'm working from home, obviously. There's not a lot that's very normal at the moment. Yeah, agreed. I'm actually enjoying working from home very much programmers are in a good position to do that. Do you work professionally in Elm or is Elm a pastime for you at this point? It's a pastime for me. I do have like we have something that we call 10% time at work and I do have a project there that's using Elm but other than that it's not used at work. Okay yeah I've seen a lot of that happen of Elm being used as kind of a tool for building admin UIs and internal tools and things like that? So if you're interested in what I, I built, it's actually something where we, as a company, like everybody can log in and say, I have these skills, like I can program and I have spent this many hours in doing it and maybe this many hours in doing Elixir and I really love it or I really hate it. And mm -hmm. so everybody in the company gets an idea who knows what. And I actually do some graphs based on that and stuff like this. That's cool. And that's something you, that you've just built internally for the use of your company. Yeah, at the moment right now. But we've been thinking to open source it, but it needs more work to not be entangled with the company network, I guess. I have the exact same problem with a side project that I'm working on at work in Elm. One of the things that I'm doing at work is an app called The Face Wall. And what it does is it connects to our Slack account and pulls down all of the employee profiles. And it's an app that runs on the meeting room TV screens when they're not in use. And it just kind of goes through a slideshow of showing the employees and information from their Slack profiles. And that is written all in Elm, but just like yours, there is a significant amount of code in it that is very specific to our company and the specific fields we have in our Slack profiles. And so disentangling that, making it configurable and usable by another company is something I wouldn't mind doing one day, but I'm not sure if I'll get around to it. Yeah, I totally understand that. We actually 
have been thinking if it would be a good thing to open source it right now. Yeah. Oh, we have a lot in common, it sounds like. I don't know what your company's main product is, if it's even a product company, but I am fascinated by these internal tools that connect people within an organization because that's kind of my day job is to work on a software platform that does things like that. Yeah, I realize that. That's actually why I bring it up. <laughs> well, thank you. So how long, apart from Elm, how long have you been doing, you know, web application development of one kind or another? And eventually I'd like to hear how you discovered Elm. Web application development only started my current uh, workplace. And I've been here for like three or four years. I don't remember exactly. Before that, I was doing a lot of .NET, like C Sharp mostly. Uh, desktop application for a warehouse basically so you put some data into masks and those get transferred to a web shop and the web shop will do stuff with it and logistics will do stuff with it and stuff like that like get packages and get them to customers and you know more and more of that sort of software is moving to the web these days so i suppose did you consider it a luxury to be working on a desktop app and not have to worry about the web and JavaScript and all of the, the, the cruft that comes with that? It was pretty nice in some regards, but we did do very many things in SQL Server, and that's kind of a two-sided blade. It's very, very powerful, but it's also very easy to do some stuff wrong, I guess. As with any organization, there there might be some people that are not exactly helping and have some point of views that are very different from yours. So it's interesting, but at some point you have to move on, I guess. Yeah, you take the good with the bad in any ecosystem until at some point you get to try something new, I guess. Yeah. At work, I'm now doing Angular, for better or for worse, I guess. And yeah, that's quite a big change, but it's not like we're only doing the front end, like I'm doing pretty much full stack and the stack is quite, quite deep in that project. Like we got RabbitMQ, we got TimescaleDB, Postgres and MongoDB and some machine specific protocols. And so it's very, very big place to do all kinds of stuff. There would be quite a contrast between your, your work during the day on Angular and some of your side project work in Elm. I often talk to people who are familiar with React and who have moved to Elm or are exploring Elm, and, and there the difference is mostly syntax. A lot of the concepts are the same, and there's a lot more strictness and guarantees that you get from Elm, but ultimately the programming model is quite similar where you are you know controlling a state that gets rendered to a virtual DOM in like a unidirectional data flow. And it seems to me that Angular kind of has gone the other way and, and accepted the other side of all of those trade-offs. And it gets good things from that and it gets bad, bad things from that. But it would be more of a jump back and forth between the world of Angular and the world of Elm. Is that something you feel or is that, or am I overstating that? So we actually started to use NGXS which is state management for Angular. So I'm using some learnings from functional programming in general. Right. So I'm not familiar with that package, but it sounds like it sort of adapts the Angular environment to that sort of functional stateless approach. You just get a state and you get to update it. And it's not as nice <laughs> as it's in Elm, if you ask me. It's actually kind of weird in some regards, like... You have multiple stores and stores kind of exist when they shouldn't be really existing as far as the debugger tells you. But yeah, it works for the most part. So how did Elm end up in the mix for you? Are you just the kind of person who's like really into open source and so you end up exploring a lot of things as they come up and Elm just crossed your radar for that reason? Or were you out looking for something like Elm? I don't actually remember how it happened like... I've been testing many languages. I had a phase where I was jumping from language to language, I guess, just to learn stuff. Maybe because I was bored at my last job. 
but I'm pretty much the language guy in, our, in the new company. I've spoken about that guy at CultureAmp before. His name is Marcos, and he is the reason we are using Elm. But it, he is the engineer who, when we hired him, he was like, oh, I've, I've used this and this and this and this before, and I like these ones, and these ones I, I like less. And Elm is something that I would really love to use here. What do you think? So do you collect languages for fun? It's probably not that bad, I guess, <laughs> but I might be denying it. Like... I did like a small thing I published on GitHub at some time just to test out of the waters, I guess. But I actually met Evan at Google at, in 2015, I think. Were you working at Google at the time? No, we were invited to Google Summer of Code Mentor Summit. All right. That was the one year where I saw him and it was kind of weird. Like I somehow knew who he was and he obviously did not know who I was. So I tried to speak to him and it was actually fun. But yeah, that might have uh, something to do with me getting involved. I, I really liked how he thinks about stuff. You are the author of the Elm language server and a constellation of related software products around it from the Visual Studio Code extension for Elm, the new current Elm language support package for that editor. I understand in order to write the language server, you had to write this other thing, which is the tree sitter. Where did that effort start? Because it's not everyone who is a hobbyist in a language who decides the thing I want to contribute is the tooling for editors. Yeah, I kind of wanted to always do tooling. I'm not sure if it's always, but coming from the other project, I'm uh, involved with we did start to do some tooling and I really enjoyed it and so when people were looking at how to do stuff in M and get better integration there were some people that actually started out but it didn't go as fast as I wanted it to go basically they took the compiler and forked it so they could use the AST and the problem about AMP's AST is that it's pretty strict. So what we want in an IDE is you need to be able to figure out stuff even if your code is broken. You've got a half-written function. You still need to be able to provide uh, syntax highlighting and auto-completion on what is code that the compiler would say this is nonsense. Exactly. And... While Evan said it would totally be possible to figure that out, I'm not sure when he will get around to that. Like, And it's probably something the compiler might not even, should not even be doing, I guess. There was an Haskell implementation, but I don't understand Haskell, so I was like waiting for the repo to update and it did not update. And I think the people that were working on it just got lost in other things. So I started to start it again, doing a TypeScript implementation, I think December two years ago. The idea of a language server in the first place I'm interested in. I had heard the term language server a couple of times in relation to TypeScript itself. Ruby has a language server that when I'm working on Ruby files, it mentions that it is talking to something called the Ruby language server. Can you talk about a language server in the abstract and why that seemed like a good thing for Elm to have at the time? Well, basically you get multiple editors for free. We can run implementation for the server and just get multiple clients working for free, like Vim now does completions, Emacs should be able to get completions, Sublime is working, VS Code is obviously working. That's the nice part about it. So you have relatively thin editor-specific clients for this persistent process that sits running and provides kind of the brain of an editor experience. Most clients are just going to connect to the server. They have some settings that you can do and the other stuff is all stock. There are some other nice things that are not in the language server protocol yet that you could do 
which you could do on top in the client, but it's already too much for me to maintain the Twisitter, <laughs> the language server, and the VS Code client. So I'm not going to implement anymore, and I'm actually trying to focus on the server. So everybody gets most features for free and not write as many client-specific code. So you mentioned the language server protocol there. What I've seen in the code leads me to this understanding, and tell me if this is right, is that editors that provide standard language server support mean that you can really just, to write something like the Elm extension for VS Code, you basically say, hey, VS Code, this is a language supported by this language server, and here's how you connect to it. And you know what to do with a language server. So just, you know, consume its features. Is this, you know, growing family of editors well supported by like this built-in support for language servers? Well, it's mostly true for VS Code because it's maintained by Microsoft. And like, if you're doing changes to the language server protocol itself, they are saying that you need an um, example implementation. And most of those example implementations are done in the node connector to a language server, basically. So okay. that's how most stuff ends up in that one. We want to attract new developers to use M, and there's no, basically no tooling. It's not going to work, I think. What was your initial ambition for this thing? Because Visual Studio Code already had an Elm language extension that, as far as it went, it was working okay. And you were starting over. I imagine there was a certain feature or a certain point you wanted to get to where you were like, that, that is the thing that was not possible in the old language e extension. And we have now succeeded in our mission for this project. Can you remember what that was? I don't think it it was like that for me. I feel like it went uh, like the, the old Im implementation, which was pretty good at one point, pretty much fell into disrepair uh, when I think when 0 0.19 came out, like some stuff was still working, but it felt not as nice to me. Like most stuff, did, like completions were pretty much nowhere to be found as far as I can remember, but some people were still reporting that completions are working. I think some people are still saying that M Oracle is working for them, which is weird to me, I guess. But the latest author of the old implementation moved on to do open source for like as a day job. And he's now working on the F-sharp implementation of a language server, which is Ionite, and which is pretty, pretty good. If you have to look at F-sharp code, I highly recommend Ionite. And so if the old maintainer of the old extension had moved on to building language servers, that was a pretty good sign that that was a reasonable direction to take for Elm as well? Yeah, but I did not know that at the time. So this is what fascinates me is like, how much of an unknown was this project for you when you started on it? When I wanted to, to contribute to it, I, I was kind of like, well, today is the day I'm going to have to find out what a language server is. And I went to the Microsoft language server specification website and started reading and it was much bigger than I expected. Were you in a similar boat with it? Yeah, absolutely. Like it's a big spec. But to be honest, you only need the parts that, that, that you're going to implement right now. Getting the server to run is the main thing at the start, but I think there's a good starting like a template for it to get started, where you can get a basic server running or generated basically and get it running and see that they can talk to each other and then you can just start to implement stuff. Was that the reason you ended up building it in TypeScript? Because there was a strong template to start from? Not the template, but that I could be sure that the like we're using a package to like a node package that I mentioned before, we're using to talk to the language server basically. But the thing for me really was that I could be sure that they are going to maintain it and keep it up to date. Like, 
I have been thinking about learning Haskell and uh, doing it that way, but I would have needed to have the same library, I guess, and I don't think I would have been able to pull that off in Haskell quite as good. Yeah, I think back to like the Elm Jitsu package for Atom, having been written in Elm itself, that always seemed to me like an amazing magic trick. But if that wasn't what you were setting out to prove was possible, it might not be the easiest path to success. How long were you working at it before you had something that you felt like was a release that people could use? That's a good question. Like I think I needed about six months to get Twisitor to work as good as it was working at that point, I guess. So let's talk about tree sitter. What problem does it solve? What led you to that problem? And what led you to think, okay, this is a separate enough problem that I'm going to implement this as a separate package first? Tree sitter itself is a library from a guy that's working for GitHub. It, I think it's even owned by GitHub right now. So and it aims to be general enough to pass different programming languages. So you write a, a definition file basically and it will figure out where your nodes are, create an AST and be fast about it, be robust so that it can even pass stuff where errors are in your file. And it's doing some different tricks to achieve that under the hood. But the next thing is like it's completely dependency free when we started, it was implemented in C. Now it's done completely in Rust. And it's just growing and growing. Like they started to add like coloring some time ago. And just yesterday, they merged a pull request where you basically get something like C text where you can make the language server aware of, no, not the language server, but Twisted are aware of how references are working. So they're actually using it f on GitHub right now for their data science teams. And if you've ever used the JavaScript or TypeScript functions in GitHub where you jump to a definition or find references, that's all implemented on the back of TreeSitter. Yeah, wow. The tree it's sitting on, I think I made this mistake when I first heard about TreeSitter of assuming that the tree it's sitting on is the directory structure of your project and it's it's something that is spotting changes to files and letting you know when you need to refresh your model of the contents of that file but it's actually the tree of the syntax it's the abstract syntax tree inside of a given file that it is sitting and observing and, and notifying you of changes to is that right well it's not really uh, notifying you about anything like it's just you throw it input basically you give it um, a file and you're not, you know, you're not giving it a file, but you're giving it content of your file, and it will pass those into an AST. You need to say this is an M file, obviously, like use the M parser for it. It can also have nested programming languages, but in our case, we say, hey, this is M, and please pass this as M, and it tries to figure out what the AST is, and the next time that we want to pass it with, with TreeSitter is optimized to pass stuff on typing, basically. So it should be fast enough to repass whenever you add something to the buffer or remove something from the buffer. So we can actually do an update of a tree. It's really, really so fast. We're passing every M file I can basically get my hands on with TreeSitter. So I'm downloading the package index for M, and I also handpicked projects, and I think it's 10,000 files in just 45 seconds or something like that. Most of the time is spent on downloading stuff from GitHub. The actual work happens in the blink of an eye. And that's quite amazing, actually. Like One of the problems I had was like when I were downloading every package that has ever been there for 0.19 some people like to have broken broken files and they're like either they are not updating their tests i'm not sure why that is or maybe some old 0.18 examples 
we failed to pass those, obviously, but like we're passing 98% of the fights I'm giving it. And passing in, the, in this case, it just means that some nodes don't work. Like most of the fire will still work. So how did how did you come to Tree Sitter? Like, is that a is that a tool that is in common use by other language servers now, and and that's how you get high performance parsing, or was it a case of you knew you were going to need some parsing at the heart of this language server, and Tree Sitter happened to fit the bill really well? Yeah. The letter. I knew I needed to do something with the syntax of the files to be able to understand it and to walk the trees, basically. But I have never done an AST implementation, and so I knew we would need it in some way, and it being robust, like, it needs to absolutely pass files that are not complete, and figuring all this stuff out would have taken me probably a year, I guess. It's already available as a NPM package that you can pull into your language server. And, you know, it installs the native version of it for your platform automatically. It must have seemed like a miracle when you found that and realized how many problems it solved for you. We started out with including it normally, but now we are using the WebAssembly version so that we can basically sidestep having your PC to download a binary for each platform individually, like a Mac needs something different than Windows will need and stuff. So with WebAssembly, we can just include the WebAssembly and every platform should be happy. Yeah, wow. I'm trying to put myself in your shoes here working through this of like, okay, I'm, I'm going to build a language server I guess I'm going to have to start building a parser. Oh, wait, there is this thing, this tree sitter that is a framework for parsers, and I can just contribute the Elm support to that. You were several layers deep at this point, imagining myself in your shoes, and I'm wondering if I would ever get back to the top of the stack and actually deliver Elm language support for an editor, or if I would end up you know, stuck at contributing to one of these inner layers of the thing. I think I just enjoyed writing the parser because I've never done any AST parsing and it was kind of fun. Like I was inspired by the tree that the IntelliJ plugin is using. I started to read the Kotlin files they use to parse and try to understand that too. And so the trees were pretty similar in the beginning as far as I can tell. But yeah, it's it was a nice task and something I could do on the side while watching TV, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess at a certain point, you found yourself with a working Elm parser. You were then able to start work on supporting one by one the features of the language server protocol. Yes, exactly. Like I was aware that there was also a Ruby implementation that was using TreeSitter. So it was another language server that had TreeSitter in its core. Yeah, and I'm not even sure if that's still alive or going, but it's the only one I've seen so far. If you start your editor, we start like getting all your M files and parsing them, and like we have a forest full of trees which are not connected, right? So we need to figure out which tree is referencing which other tree and uh, basically build another layer on top of that. Otherwise, we won't be able to like go to files or find references. As I mentioned earlier, this part might die whenever we implement the new features in TreeSitter. So we could move it deeper into the stack to TreeSitter, which we absolutely should do because... It's so much faster. Good point. It's going to be faster. Not that I'm not sure if that has been a problem, but we can probably get up to include the TreeSitter on the website for Elm. So the embedded editor for Elm in GitHub could then be reference aware, for example. Yes, absolutely. Like Just like for JavaScript. Uh, and we could have done that, but they were saying like the project is named Semantic, I think, from GitHub. And you could like do a pull request and add Elm, but they wanted to have like so many tests and stuff but they're trying to make it easier to do this and i think there's effort going into it and 
they really want it to happen, like it's only going to be a good thing for them, right? I'd like to go off on a tangent for a second. Something that you mentioned a little while ago was that you were involved in this Google Summer of Code project and, and you know, got to meet Evan in the process. I'm curious to hear kind of what has been your experience of the Elm community? Like what part of the world are you in, for example? Do you go to any meetups? Have you been to any conferences? How have you joined the Elm community apart from being the maintainer of this software package? So I'm in Germany. I have been like, I've been with a friend in Berlin some like last year, I think. And I just popped into the German Slack room, I think, and asked if there's anybody in Berlin that wants to meet up. And so I met up with Unsoundscapes. He is on my list of people I really want to get on this show. Yeah, he's awesome, dude. And some other guys like, was it Erkan? Yeah. We just hung out a bunch and we were like, normally we go to America for Google Sum of Code Summit. But last year it was the first time in Germany in Munich. And as it might happen, like it, there was an L meetup the, the first night I was in town. So I grabbed my friend from the States. He came along and we heard a talk from Christoph, I think. We don't have any meetup in my uh, city, but I'm just going to the, like, all the functional guys here around seem to go to this sharp meetup that's done by a good friend. And, well, we just enjoy to talk about functional stuff, I think. Uh, that reminds me of here in Melbourne, the the Ruby meetup, for example, has very much morphed into a social group for people who like programming languages and were led to their current programming language via Ruby at some point in the past. I would say that on a given night, about only, only about half the people there are actively working in Ruby to this day. Uh, I actually think that's the thing that's bound to happen to most communities, I think. Well, I suppose that's how you know it's a good community, when it outlives or, or grows beyond the, the specific language that started it. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing I was thinking before this pandemic happened was like, I've done an AMP talk at my company. Like, well, we do meetups sometimes, and I did a uh, meetup to talk over about M to people that never heard about it basically but so so I basically have a talk lying around which I've only done once so I was thinking to just write to other communities all over Germany and say hey can I talk about M in your meetup and just drive there like have a good time but yeah that's not going to happen very soon I guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, one day all of our doors will open again and we can get on the road. Well, I guess we should just get started doing online meetups. Like we've, like the F-Sharp community started to do these kind of cool online meetups and hangouts, and that's been pretty cool so far. So coming back to the language server, you put out an initial release at some point, and how were you feeling about the project at that time? What were you proud of? What were you still hoping or still very much eager to add? There are so many things that could still be done. Like as soon as you add something that's awesome, you still think like you can, we can maybe do it better this way or maybe add this. Like one thing that's always been on the wish list is like type inference, which I actually started to work on, but I'm not going to give any ETA because that's just going to hurt everybody. Type inference meaning on, on any given expression in the editor, you can ask the language server, what is the type of this? Yes, which will be most interesting for functions, I guess, but it's going to be good to learn stuff and figure out what the language server thinks this is and hopefully reflect that what Elm thinks this is like. The times I skipped type annotations always came back 
to bite me in my experience like if you put a type annotation above it and you figure out that something you thought was something completely different is actually not the type you get at this point well yeah even just writing my type annotations for me that would probably be my my biggest wish list item and it's it's something that we used to be able to do by harvesting the the warning messages from the elm compiler but but elm 19 doesn't have those warning messages anymore so we have to we have to come up with those types ourselves these days twisted is nice and working pretty much as far as i'm concerned but we can still improve it. Like I've mostly only done testing on happy paths for now, and we can probably improve how it fails. Like if you have incomplete code, is it really taking the optimal failure state, I guess? Some, some nodes might get lost, even if it figures out just to ignore those, that, that leaf that you have there. Maybe it change some other leaf to accommodate for that. So I can imagine you would want to build up at some point a library of like broken Elm files and test that they break in the most desirable way. Which is also pretty easy with TreeSitter, but I haven't taken that time. Like building up this, that library and the tests is pretty easy, but getting the TreeSitter to actually break like that, if that makes sense, is maybe not as easy for me. And is that expertise something that you you want to develop? Is like that the way you want to spend your time on this project, given all the other things you could be doing, I suppose? Well, not at the moment. That I, I really think that type inference would be the most helpful thing right now, not just for annotating your functions, but it also will help the compiler side, uh, not, not the compiler, but it will help the the server to figure out the types basically and help you maybe in an anonymous function to know what this type is yeah so yeah you're writing an anonymous function it takes an argument and then you want to provide completion for the fields of that argument if it is a record for example that sort of stuff so that's your that's your white whale at the moment. That's the thing. That's the big feature you would like to head towards. You're 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 not prepared to give an estimate on it yet. The other thing that I'm not sure is how and when we will figure it out. Is at the moment we are only indexing stuff on startup basically. Like all your files get indexed and you can then edit. But normally, if you install you go, go. You you work in your M file and you add a dependency and it gets installed into your cache. Basically, like there's a folder on your hard disk somewhere that's not in your project, which is kind of where my problem starts. And there are files that are getting added. And so, do I set up a watcher for that location that's not anywhere near your project? Should I just do that or I, I really don't want to jump into locations where the user doesn't want me to look like. Is that going to be spooky for people? Yeah. What, wait, how did you know about that file? Yeah, I can see some people not liking that. That's the thing like with NPM or yeah, with Node, you always get a Node module folder in your project and it's pretty obvious what to do with that. But in Elm, it's all centralized, basically, which has its pros, obviously. But I'm struggling a bit with this decision and how to nicely do that. Like, the best thing would even be to have install, have a callback and just say, hey, we installed somehow and you need to rescan. Yeah, I mean, I, I could imagine you providing the feature in the editor extension to install a new package. And because your extension initiated that install, you could then you could then parse the files once it was complete. But that would that would still leave the problem of how, what if the user installed the package a different way? It's going to be recommended everywhere to do it via the terminal. So there's no easy way of getting out of this, I think. Oh, well, that's what makes it a fun challenge, right? <laughs> yeah. 
That's that part is correct. Yeah. <laughs> I know. As we record this, you just recently did a pretty major feature release for the Elm language server and the VS Code extension along with it. And you you mentioned in the release that this was largely a collection of contributions from someone else on the project. Can you talk about some of the collaborations, some of the contributions you've had? If you if you want to sing my praises as a one-time contributor, you would be very welcome to. Yeah, I I actually love to have contributions. Like it's a way too big place to be owning myself, basically. Like. There are so many awesome people that have been involved and are involved, like J.M. Bockhorst, I think he's named, is has been doing the pretty much so much over the last weeks, which is mostly most of those feature releases you're seeing right now. There was Andy, which is doing anything with Vim, basically, so... He's maintaining the Vim client. As, yeah, there's not really a Vim client, but he's maintaining how to configure stuff and he's helping with documentations. And he's just a great guy. He actually sent me a package to my company unannounced. Oh, wow. And I got stickers for, um, uh, for, for my language server, basically, with the logo. Oh, wow. Oh, and. Well, my, 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 our front office was like, do you know anybody by the name of... And I'm like, no. And <laughs> then I saw the nickname on it and then it clicked. Yeah, wow. But those kinds of things are really awesome. And your contribution was also very, very much appreciated because it was not the easiest thing to get fixed. <laughs> Let me say that much. I was very happy of how willing you were for me to kind of turn the code structure of the language server inside out in a couple of places. I think coming coming in, I, you know, like any other sort of uh, cocky new contributor, I thought, oh, this is going to be an easy bug to fix. It'll be like a five-line change. And and I opened the issue and I went, do you, do you mind if I have a crack at tackling this? And you, you said... This is something I have tried to fix before, and it turned into a much bigger job than I thought. But if you think you can fix it, go ahead. And I was like, "Great, I'm gonna, I'm gonna impress you with just how easy a fix it was." And then, like three weeks later, I was refactoring half of the files in the language server, and I knew exactly what you had meant. But I appreciated your willingness to go along with me to review my changes, to tell me what I had missed when I had an initial version ready for testing. Yeah, I, I enjoyed. That partnership a lot. Yeah, it's. I, I think it's always fun to do stuff like this, and I, I think it. As far as I can tell, it worked out pretty good. For those listening, wondering what this was, it was because at Culture Amp we have a large number of L maps in a single Git repository that we open in our editor, and in many cases, the same library modules are being used by more than one of those Elm apps. So. I think at the time, the, the Elm language server was built on the assumption that you would point it at a single elm.json file, and it would support the editor working across that context. But in our case, we wanted a single instance of the editor working across something like 17 elm.json files. And if you open any old Elm file, it should be able to know which Elm JSON file is responsible for it and what its dependencies are. And, you know, clearly we were pushing the boundaries and that is that it, I was not at all surprised that that was not a supported scenario in a brand new language server. But yeah, now that it's working, it's, it's working surprisingly well. That's good to hear. Like, it's interesting that we get, like, we have multiple levels of workspaces vs code can have workspaces m can have something like workspaces i guess but then again you can nest them i think it's, it's getting pretty pretty confusing at some point so an elm.json file and all of the elm source files that go with it is referred to as an elm workspace in the code base but like you said visual studio code has 
the idea of a workspace and you can have more than one of them open. And do you have one language server per VS Code workspace or do you have a single language server for all of the workspaces? And if you have multiple workspaces with multiple elm.json files inside of them, just what workspace are you talking about when you say workspace? <laughs> it's very hard to keep straight. On the other hand, if you've solved that, it's pretty much going to be solved for everything. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed. From an observer's perspective, it still feels like the language server is somewhat young in that you know, on any given week, if you're looking at the Slack channel, there is often someone coming in going, hey, it's not working for my scenario and it's crashing in a weird way. Can you help me? And usually they get the help they need and it, it ends up working. But it seems like there is still like a number of edge cases out there or strange configurations, or in my case, like really weird directory structures that weren't anticipated. It feels like the project is still somewhat working its way through those and shaking those kinks out of it. Does it feel like that to you? It might sound worse than it actually is. Like I'm really, really glad if people come and report stuff because I can only test on the code bases I have. And it's it might really depend on your code base if it's going to crash or your setup. And there's so much stuff involved that can affect it, I guess. And I can't really test everything. Like, But now that you mentioned that, there's like... If I had all the time in the universe, I would start writing more tests, obviously. Another big thing that we could do is not depend on mAnalyze and not depend on the AM compiler. Basically, write our own uh, thing based on TreeSitter and figure out, like, not use mAnalyze, but figure out the stuff that mAnalyze gives you via TreeSitter. Are you saying that's where any fragility seems to occur is at that interface between the language server and the external tools that it is calling the Elm Make, Elm Analyze, and Elm Format? That at that moment of going, hey, I'm going to invoke another process and interpret the shell output that comes out of it, that that tends to be the place where unexpected things happen? Yeah, like with uh, AM0.19, we had cases where the report JSON function from AM did not report valid JSON. And so we couldn't pass it and just crashed. Stuff like that. You can probably handle it with integrations, but it seems like somebody has found another edge case where this might be happening, like yesterday. And I'm not sure how to get out of that without when we rely on those tools. And for some cases, I'm not sure how much time is spent to, like, on the AIM compiler, there's probably going to not be a problem in the end, but, like, I'm not sure how much time is spent to maintain stuff like mAnalyze and how long it's going to be in a state that we can work with it. We actually have to maintain a fork of mAnalyze right now because we couldn't upstream stuff we have at the moment. So, yeah, it's probably going to happen at one point, but I think there's actually an open merge request, but it hasn't really moved. And as far as I could tell, it's not the fastest tool we've used, like... I've done some performance stuff some weeks ago where we were loading uh, the Tailwind M file, which is just like 1500 uh, functions, something like that. And it took like forever. And one of the reasons it took forever was that M Analyze did not like that file really. We had our own problems, which increased the time, but after I fixed that and disabled uh, M Analyze, it worked really good so it was a combination of both and format is at the moment you get a whole whole new file every time like what the language server is doing is it's asking hey this file has to be formatted here's the content and format will pass the file and format it for us then we get the formatted file back and we actually diff the old file against the new one 
and create a, a diff and apply just the diff to your buffer. So that has that causes well that that leads to your editor not jumping up and down like if we replace the whole file for you, where is your cursor? So it's worth doing, but it's fairly inefficient a set of layers of parsers sending communicating with other parsers through whole file snapshots. Yeah, it would be much nicer to just ask the, the formatter to get us a diff. Yeah, right. So I think I speak for uh, the entire Elm community, or at least everyone who is using an editor that, that has an integration with the language server, that I, I want to thank you for all the work you are putting into this. Is it fair to say you are spending more time working on the Elm language server than you get to spend actually writing Elm? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that is something of an injustice, I have to say, that the person who is working hardest on the tooling gets to benefit it from it the least. But it might actually highlight how much I'm depending on feedback from the community, like open up issues, even if I'm not be able to help you this week or next week. But it's really, really important that we keep stuff reported and... Maybe there are some people from the community that want to help out. Like, I pretty much have three projects that I need to maintain alone just for this. So bug reports, welcome. Contributors, welcome. Thank you again for all of that work you're putting into it. I am a big fan of the language server. I have to say, every time I log into the Elm Slack, the Elm language server channel is the first one I click on to go and see what's new and whether there's a new release. And, and honestly... There have been days where I have chosen to, to spend some time on an Elm side project because there is a new feature in the language server that I want to play with. And, and I can think of no higher compliment for you than that, that yours is a tool that makes me want to use Elm more. Yeah, that's, that really makes me have a big smile on my face right now. Like, that's a big compliment. But I really want to thank you too for doing Town. Really happy to hear that you're a happy listener. I agree that it is a really good back catalog. And that's not only my doing, that's Murphy's doing before me as well. I am only hosting this show because I was such a big fan of it beforehand. But that's a good way to work it, right? Maybe someday you have to move on, but maybe we can find another one that's seeing it just like this. That sounds good to me. And I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for the chat, Kolya. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you, listener, for joining us once again in Elmtown. Like I said, we've got a lot of episodes in the hopper. And you can look forward to more Elmtown coming to you soon. Bye for now.